Hello? Hello? It's all around us. Hey everybody, what's up? Welcome back. This week I have Patrick from Almost Educational on the show with me. Hey Patrick, what's up? Uh, nothing much, just here uh, in quarantine with you. And you Hundreds- almost had an incident involving your toe last week. We won't oh. go into great detail about it, but it was funny because uh, the week before I'd released a show and I said, yeah, you know what, I'm gonna, we got this thing called the curse of the show. Wherever we talk about a future guest coming on the show, it always something goes wrong with it. And that last week you were the guest, you were the problem with the show because your your toe went crazy. Then you had it replaced with a bionic toe, and now it makes that little noise every time you like do something or whatever. No, oh no, that'd be no. so sweet if it did. No, it just has a bacterial infection oh, that I had to get right. ointment for, ointment for, and uh, uh, medicine for. That was all it is. I was going to tell was... you that um, if they did take your toe to see if they could replace it with an adamantium one with a, like a claw that would shoot out like Wolverine, you'd have like a <laughs> Wolverine be, toe. It, That'd be pretty sweet. Just kick it out of my, uh, my out of my shoe. Yeah. No, it was uh, it was hairy. Like the, the the toe itself was not bad. I mean, it was concerning uh, because it was not responding to the the over the counter meds that we were using for it. But going to the hospital itself uh, with the coronavirus was like white knuckle. Mm-hmm. Oh man, time. Uh, yep. I got tested twice. Once going in. Once going out, negative both times. I was never by anyone else other than a couple other people who were there for like various bodily injuries. Yeah, um, but it, walking in the door, you had to be like, "Oh shit! Oh, oh. man! Oh god!" Yeah, because well, walk, uh, walking through the door, it was the the regular hospital doors, and then to the left, there were these armed security guards escorting people through like a sh- uh, like a enclosed glass chute to the quarantine area for <laughs> suspected coronavirus. <laughs> I oh just got to imagine like I'm heading there. I'm heading there i'm next but i was not next oh all right well you might not be able to be here for the post part of the show so let's get you out of the way like i usually do at the end we'll just cover you up front uh you host the show or a co-host of the show almost educational you've been on here a few times i've been on your show a few times um where can people find you at is there a website for it or there is a website hopefully i got the newest one updated i don't think i put uh updated the newest show on canadian baseball but almost educational is a show in which uh i essentially created a list on a piece of paper of things i wish as a teacher i could talk about in the classroom philosophy or history if it went sideways in alternate history or just any topic i want to talk about and then i just postulate on it for an hour and typically with a guest or my co-host dennis uh wide-ranging stuff we might talk about like the last episode i had a guy from canada 
Stephen Gower, who has a uh, podcast that's essentially like a pirate radio where he plays Creative Common music, but he loves baseball like me. And we created alternate baseball leagues uh, that eliminated teams that we didn't like, put them together the way we liked, uh, gave a little bit of baseball history in between. It's it's great infotainment is what I say on, on a topic. So if you don't like baseball, the next week, like Dennis and I are going to be talking about um, – the fascist coup attempt in 1930s America that was uh, uh, called the businessman's plot against FDR. So if that strikes your fancy, you can listen to that next week. You guys do a lot of alternative history shows. I love that stuff. If I was more if I was a little more confident in myself, I would just have the, the podcast be dedicated solely to that. It becomes a lot of work, A, and B, it becomes a lot of, yeah, I don't know what will happen after that, though. <laughs> like, like, because you can't go. You can only pull the thread so far until it falls all apart. It's like it's like two guys that are into history got together and sat down and smoked a joint and really started going into like what would happen if history went this way. It's a um, little bit like that. Well, the other thing too is that we get the lots of things wrong, even though we have lots of notes in front of us. We do like corrections, but like those are the most brutal. Where someone's like, "Well, it wasn't really the, the it was not the Arcadians. It's the Acadians who oh settled in, in, in Newfoundland." <laughs> you're like, "Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I'm wrong. You're right." So tonight we're going to be interview, interviewing the director of the Michigan UFO Network, which is Bill Konkoleski. Oh, wait. Ah, Kon, Kon, Konkol, yeah, Konkoleski. I'll say that part. Yes, Bill Konkoleski. <laughs> that's what it is. And um, he's going to come on here and talk to us about a sampling of Michigan's UFO cases, the big one. Now, um, I had you on here because you're also a fellow Michigan person, and this stuff is Michigander. Just, Michigander, yeah, Michigander. Right. So this stuff will resonate with you. And plus, when he says, "Yeah, this happened here, this happened here, there," you'll know the areas that he's talking about. So, and we discussed beforehand what cases we're going to cover. Now, I'm going to say this right now before we get into this interview. Since I just dropped the found audio episode of the anniversary of the Ann Arbor UFO flap, where the whole swamp gas thing came from, we're probably either not going to touch on it, or we're going to touch on it very lightly because we covered it. I covered it so extensively in that episode that there's other things that we haven't talked about on here and other cases in Michigan that are just as crazy. We are going to go back and retouch on the Holland, Michigan UFO case where the air traffic and I'm sorry, the National Weather Service person was actually tracking something on radar as he was on the phone with the police. Um, again, that case resonates with me because, A, you've got police officers involved and you've also got somebody from the National Weather Center involved and they're seeing these things as they happen and these people are trained to spot bullshit for lack of a better term. Mm. And that one's always resonated with me because you've got these people that are in, I don't want to say superior positions, but are more knowledgeable about things. And even these people are freaked out and puzzled. They're even astounded by it. And to hear the audio, it was like, wow, what's going on here? So that's one that's always stuck with me. But we have a variety of cases here we're going to try to go over. Um, we're going to try to keep this around an hour because you've got to bounce out of here tonight and... You know, we're just going to try to make it all fit together as best as we can. So if we don't hear from Patrick at the end of the show, he didn't catch coronavirus and die during the taping of the night that So um, I think you that's pretty dub, much You it. just dub me in going, yes. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It'll be yeah. like that episode of South Park where after Chef left the show, they just took Chef audio parts and re-added them back in. <laughs> okay, children. <laughs> okay, children. So, um, I think that's pretty much it. Did you want to throw anything in here before we jump into this interview or anything like that? Or uh, I'm 
really excited about the 1994 flap too with the blip on the radar because in my living that that's the only thing i can remember from my living memory in terms of ufo and like that became a reality to me that this is something in my world and not just something i read in like chariots of the gods type books yeah there was uh, also not too far around there was a big sighting that happened down i believe it was in ohio or indiana that we also covered where police officers were chasing something it was like through three different states and it hmm. all started out as a joke over the radio where the cops were like oh yeah there's you know people are seeing star trek romulans and stuff like that and then the cops are calling and saying no this is real i'm chasing it it's over top of my car it's going here now it's going there now and that was i think i think it was just before the holland the holland michigan one uh, right around it was in the early 90s and it just kind of moved its way up into michigan and mm. he's also got another case we're gonna talk about which is from 2004 which is a highland township of a ufo landing that i knew nothing about it sounds like it's somewhere out in the sticks somewhere and a guy had it happen on his property and the, the you know bill here was one of the people that investigated it so you know um i guess we'll just see where this takes us and uh, i i will see everybody at the other side i don't know if, if patrick will be here or not but he's here now and he will be for the interview so <laughs> That's all that matters. I'm here now. I'm here now in spirit. I'm, I'll be in there the whole time in spirit, I promise. How soon is now? And I'll, I'll tell you what. I can still text you and tell you, good job. Good job, bro. Good Thanks. job. Thanks. That will yeah. that, be appreciated. <laughs> all, right. all right. Here we go. Let's do this. You better pray to the Lord when you see those flying saucers. It may be the coming of the judgment day. It's a sign there's no got Bill Konkoleski on here from the Michigan UFO Network. Bill, tell us about who you are, how long you've been in MUFON, and what MUFON is. Okay. So, yeah, uh, start off, yes, I am the state director of the Michigan chapter of the Mutual UFO Network. And um, MUFON is uh, a fairly large organization. We're the world's largest civilian UFO research organization, about 5,000 members. I lost track of the number of countries. It's it's a lot, though. It's more than 40. And uh, what we do is people report UFOs to us primarily through a website, but they can also call and um, we investigate sightings. And so if you have a UFO sighting, report it to us and and a local investigator will get in touch with you. MUFON itself has been around since 1969. And since that was the same year that Project Blue Book closed, we often like to joke that we've been doing the job of the Air Force since 1969. I've been a member um, since 93, so um, long time. I've been state director of Michigan now since 2004, so that's 16 years. Wow. Um, and yeah, so it's yeah, it's never never a dull moment. <laughs> So you, you've been doing this for – you were a member before you became like part of the leadership role, I would assume, 
you're, you're oh, yeah. a part mm-hmm. of for quite some time. Um, Michigan has a rich history of UFOs. I was talking on the air beforehand. Um, I'm not going to talk too much about the whole Ann Arbor incident, but that's kind of Michigan's contribution to the big UFO field is the whole swamp gas thing because it all started here. <laughs> like when you see the movie yeah. Men in Black, they, you know, you saw light reflected off of Venus, refracted through swamp gas. It, that was the big thing. So nowadays, instead of saying swamp gases, you're seeing drones. That's become the new go-to because swamp gas was the main one for the longest time. When people saw UFOs, you're just seeing swamp gas. So, Oh, drones. That's so yesterday. Now it's Starlink satellites. Starlink satellites? Oh, I, that's new to me. That's 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 the new it. It it replaced drones, which replaced Chinese lanterns as our uh, the bane of our investigative existence. And it's um, funny yeah, if, whenever something new comes along and replaces the old thing, you never hear about Chinese lanterns and swamp gas. And now we probably <laughs> won't hear about drones anymore. It'll be you know whatever this is now. So if you're just a, a quick word on it, if you're unfamiliar or anybody uh, listening is unfamiliar with these Starlink satellites, so SpaceX, you know Elon Musk's uh, private space company. Uh, they're doing this fancy thing where they launch a bunch of low-flying satellites to boost Internet. And once they're done, they're going to have, I've heard estimates of between thirty to 42,000 satellites in low orbit oh uh, to be able to provide Internet all over the planet. That's their dream. And when they launch these things uh, – they there you see them almost like a convoy of lights across the sky it's pretty creepy looking if you've seen any of the videos just look up starlink satellites on youtube i haven't seen any in person but oh yeah if somebody doesn't know what those are and sees those things they think the invasion is coming most definitely huh well i guess we should get the ball rolling uh patrick you wanted to start in holland or the 1994 well, I was going to throw you for a curveball and start chronologically. The one, the one I, I was most interested in. Uh, the the Air Force uh, incident when the jet disappeared over Lake Superior in 53. Mm-hmm. So, like, from what I read and gleaned from it, they were sent up to intercept something on radar, and then everything went sideways from there. Can you take me through, like, what happened, the lead up to it? Sure. Well, uh, Ken Ross Air Force Base was – um, ready for action in 1953. It was the end of the Korean War. The The war had ended just a few months prior to this event. So the base was still up and running and uh, with not much to do. The reason that there was a, a heavy Air Force presence up in that area is they were afraid of um, some attack by North Korea, some sort of terrorist style attack, more specifically to to try to damage the Sioux locks, which would affect American shipping abilities and you know to to sort of lightly cripple our war effort. So they they had a, a presence up there to make sure nothing like that was going to happen. And yeah, it was November um, 1953, uh, November 23rd specifically, that they saw this big object over the Sioux locks. And this was the type of thing that that base was on high readiness for is to intercept anything that could potentially harm the Sioux locks. Um, and so they scrambled uh, F-89 Scorpion jet uh, to uh, approach the object and see what it was. They had no idea what it was and and it was quite large. So while they scrambled the jet, the object or on the radar, which they didn't see, there was no visual uh, except from the radar. Uh, the object flew up, yeah, over Lake Superior, and the uh, the plane took off after it. 
And when they watched on the radar, they saw the object over Lake Superior. They saw the plane approach it. And then the radar signatures of both overlapped for a moment and then both disappeared. And okay. yeah. that's interesting because yeah, this thing I read too was the idea they locked together and then mm-hmm. w- then they were both gone, but no record was no records was recovered, correct? Right. So one theory is they collided and okay. both went down into Lake Superior and the wreckage was never found. Or, you know, some of the more exotic theories, and I mean, if we're going to talk about UFOs, right, if there really was a flying saucer from somewhere else um, hovering above the lake and a plane approach it, you know, um, is it so unlikely to say that the, the UFO just scooped up the plane and took off with it? Mm. You know, that's that, that's certainly exotic, but then, I mean... What uh, you know? Where else are we going to go with this conversation? No wreckage of anything was ever found, apart from the hoax in two thousand four. Yeah. Oh, hold on. I want to I get to the hoax in two thousand four. But wait, before we go there, how many, how many? I mean, I know you might not know this off the top of your head. How many intercepts uh, similar to this were there around wartime Korean War? Uh, you know, Cold War era in the fifties. Was it pretty common to send up uh, interceptors on blips? And Arnie, like, was this, you know, something that happened a lot on the base or was this like big time, everyone freaking out, all hands on deck type deal? Well, the way I'll answer that is I don't have specific data points on the number of uh, intercepts attempted or Mm -hmm. um, even more so the ones that went badly. Um, There is a book from Frank Fraschina called Shoot Them Down, which is all about that era and uh, that the Air Force, the military's order was if they saw a UFO and it wasn't respecting, um, you know, our airspace or it seemed to possibly be a threat, whatever, that they would send up a plane and by all means shoot down a UFO if you can. And that, that ended badly for a number of pilots. Um, it's, it sounds like real great first contact protocol. <laughs> go, go up and start firing missiles. Shoot them down. Yep, yeah. that was the order. And Stop or I'll shoot. <laughs> so so it, it, this was not uncommon, this type of thing, um, for the plane to disappear, just frankly, just simply disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, that That isn't uh, something that I, I'm familiar with happening in a lot of these other cases. Mostly it was the, the planes were taken down. And a lot of the times it wasn't like the UFO shot some sort of ray beam at it or whatever you might expect. It's that the planes lost power as they approached mm. closely to the objects. They just flat out lost power and then spiraled down. The pilot, um, Felix Monkla, in this in the Ken Ross incident here and from 53, and um, Robert Wilson, who was also on the plane, they unfortunately uh, were not reported as killed in action. They were reported as missing a, in action. So it was a lot of difficult work um, to get the family their benefits. And uh, the family of Felix Makla, who lived down in Louisiana, actually put up a memorial to him saying that he died. Inter- oh, saying he disappeared. Pardon me. They didn't say he died. He disappeared mm. on that date, uh, intercepting UFO. Okay. Can you fill us in on the 2004 hoax now? Okay. So in 2004, um, <clears throat> there was a company that called the Great Lakes Dive Company. And it was led by a man named Adam Jimenez. And I'm putting all of this in quotes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so they claimed to have found 
the plane and the UFO both at the bottom of Lake Superior. And they showed some blurry pictures saying, look, here is our proof that we found these things down at the bottom of the lake. And, um, and we are claiming salvage rights. And if you'd like to hear more about it, uh, just wait until our DVD comes out that you can oh, buy. Oh, there you go. I remember that. Yeah. I remember I used to work at a hobby store and I had a couple of – we sold RC airplanes and there was a couple of guys that were in there talking about it at the counter ringing me up. And the one guy was talking – apparently somebody knew me. He's like, oh, yeah, he's been down there and he says they're down there. He's seen them himself. And I only caught part of the conversation and I was intrigued, but I couldn't talk to the guys. And then for years, I always wondered what happened with that. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So you got to go all in and say you're going to pull up the Edmund Fitzgerald as well. Uh-huh. <laughs> you're going to raise up with anti-gravity stuff that you got for the, the UFOs. Three collided. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. First uh, of all, I, I think I misspoke when I said 2004. It was actually 2006. My bad. But um, so th- what the what these hoaxers didn't take into account was a vibrant and well-connected UFO community, mm. um, and they were found out by several individuals in very short order. We're talking like two weeks after this news broke, they were found out to be complete frauds. Adam Jimenez was a fake name. Great Lakes, Great Lakes Dive Company was a fake company, didn't exist. And there were ties that were found to this um, to the producers of the alien autopsy video. Oh, God. No. Oh, <laughs> it always comes uh, back perfect. to that. Yeah. Uh, Chef's kiss on that one. Yeah. (laughs) Moving along. Well, okay, I guess we go from there. Uh, If you want to do it chronologically, what would be the next one up? We would go. We don't have to. I'm sorry. I I just, that was the one that I had first in my notes. And that's well, fine. I know, well, with Go Felix, ahead. I know his family, they had a hard time getting medical benefits for it. I think there was a lot of people from the UFO community that stepped in and actually finally got it to a point where he was able to get some compensation. His family was able to get some compensation from the military about it. I was going to say, locally, John Tenney was um, yeah. well, very much yeah involved in that. John's a good guy for that kind of stuff. I remember him mentioning something. We were at a meetup at a Coney Island with a whole bunch of people talking about weird stuff, and he'd brought it up because I brought the case up to him, and we talked about it a little bit. And um, he was like, yeah, I was. I helped the family get the benefits and stuff from the military from that because for, for all this time, all these years, the, the government wouldn't pay anything out. So it's like that's kind of a shitty move. But yeah, mm-hmm. whatever, because I guess the idea was if we pay this person out these medical benefits, then we have to admit that something happened. And right now we have plausible deniability. I don't know if I agree with that or what have you, but sure, whatever. Let me ask you one thing, though, before we go much further. There is no wrong answer to this question, and I've asked you this before. Um, you don't have to go into detail to it. There are usually two views as to UFOs. The one group of thought is is that these aren't nuts and bolts things, that these are you know where I'm going with this. So what camp do you tend to find yourself in, or is it even important to you? Do you believe that these are nuts and bolts, or do you believe this is more of a metaphysical, spiritual uh, consciousness thing? Okay, or both? so without going too far down the rabbit hole or too far off topic after we've set the table for what we want to discuss tonight. Um, my best short answer to that, and I'd love to, to, to discuss this at length uh, in a situation where this is the main topic, but the thing is, I think that the beings themselves have evolved to a state um, that they can plug their consciousness in and out of physical form. Mm-hmm. And, and so sometimes they do arrive physically and sometimes they don't need to arrive physically, 
but uh, appear in other manifestations because physical is not their primary form of existence. Um, I don't see myself as just saying this to hedge the bets of, you know, okay, with this, you know, it seems like anything is possible. Okay. Uh, just, but I, you know, I could, I could go a little bit further down that road, but I, I really think that that's the case, especially um, in contact experiences where these beings sometimes, uh, visit people in situations where there is no way to for them to physically do that i think if they don't need to be physical they don't necessarily appear physically okay i just asked so people got a, a frame of reference as to where you're coming from so let's move along to the 1953 i'm sorry the 1975 wurtsmith air force base um this is a story that you hear time and again in the world of ufology where a ufo buzzes uh, some kind of a military base things start going off weapons starts getting activated weird stuff happens and then the ufo more or less takes off so tell us about that incident Okay, so in this particular case, um, a lot of times when I, I do these presentations, apart from Ken Ross, there'll be somebody in the audience that says, I was there, or I remember mm -hmm. that specifically. And once I did have, in fact, the benefit of having somebody in the audience who said he was there on the night of this Wordsmith incident. So, and he said that the version of the, the events that I tell is correct. Because sometimes, uh, you know, the further back in history you get, there are some minor discrepancies in the details. So um, I use that, I guess, as my stamp of approval that the facts, as I understand them, are correct in this case. So moving ahead with that, it was October 30th, uh, 1975. Now, Wordsmith Air Force Base is, if you hold your hand out, it's just about kind of where the thumb touches a pointy finger knuckle. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And that's the map it, of Michigan for people who don't know any better is take your <laughs> left hand, lift it up and look at it from the back. And that is Michigan. So it was a it was an Air Force base um, until 93. Um, it got decommissioned and then turned into a civilian airport. But up until 93, they had nuclear bombers there. And so on this particular night, uh, this bright disc shaped light flew in over the base and hovered over a weapon storage area. And the guards at the base um, that are around the weapon storage area are f naturally freaking. And so they uh, contact the uh, air traffic tower there on base and say, you know, are you seeing this? Or like, of course we're seeing this. And not only that, we got it on radar coming in. Um, so then the big question is, what now? This thing doesn't seem to be wanting to go anywhere. It just wants to hover there over the base. And you know they're not a base known for sleek fighter jets. They're a base known for bombers. So um, at that particular time, there just happened to be a plane coming in for a landing, not a bomber, but a refueling plane, a KC-135 Stratotanker. And so this plane is coming in, and uh, the, the, the base says, hey – you see that bright light hovering over the base and the, the pilots like yeah of course you know we can't miss it so the uh they were ordered in the plane can you just sort of approach that and see what happens just kind of fly <laughs> towards that light just see what sort light of does. approach it <laughs> keep and, your distance yeah. chewy but don't look like you're keeping your distance go ahead <laughs> so yeah so the plane um flies in and it 
does its job in terms of it startles the UFO or the UFO in any case decides it's not um, going to stay there any longer. And so it starts flying south uh, towards Saginaw over the water. And the plane, they, they tell the plane, can you follow it for as far as you can? Oh, so the hell plane, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the plane very slowly lumbers towards the direction of the UFO's path. And so as they, they're flying pretty much due south, as the UFO got close to shore again, the pilot said that they lost the, the light that they were following in all the lights on the shore. So they were ordered to return to base, and as the plane turned, did this big slow turn to come around back to the base, the UFO shot up to the plane, hovered alongside it very briefly, and then shot straight up into space at, you know, disappeared within a, like a second or two. Was it the uh, triangular-shaped craft, or was it just the, the, the ball of light? It was a disc-shaped bright white light. And so, so, you, so you ask the question, what is scarier than a UFO buzzing a base with nuclear weapons right how about four bases in the course of over two weeks so um wordsmith was actually just the second stop on this ufo tour um loring air force base in maine they got their ufo visit on october 27th and then you know, wordsmith was a few days later on the 30th and then melms from air force base in montana november 7th and Minot Air Force Base just two days later on uh, November 9th in North Dakota. So four different bases with nuclear weapons were visited over the course of two weeks in the United States. Was there any other I – mean, you might not know this, but I'll just ask anyway. Was there any connection with uh, what type of nuclear weapons are being stored there, or are they just just the fact that the base had those type of weapons? I don't know. I don't okay. know if there's anything specific about the weapons themselves. Now, for, but though I will say, from what I understand, with Melmstrom and Minot, they have direct launch capabilities. Where Wordsmith was an Air Force base with bombers, gotcha. so um, that would seem to me to deposit different types of weapons. Were they the same kind of visits? Do they, do they report the same yeah. kind of activity at all of them? Yeah, from what I understand, very similar, bright white glowing discs. Now, when this thing floated away, did they scramble? Because this is an Air Force base. You would assume they would scramble fighters or something like that, but they didn't have anything like that there. It was just the bombers? In this case, they just sent a refueling plane. Not even a wow. bomber. God. <laughs> <laughs> Sac- sacrifice that one. <laughs> That's I, like I, sending and, the fry cook out to deal with an angry customer yeah. outside. <laughs> And, and, and pardon if I don't know the level of response at some of the other bases at that time, just the wordsmith. Can, can I ask a general question about the what was seen, the sighting itself? Uh, you said it was seen as a disc, like a bright light disc. What, I, what's the demarcation line of when things and sightings in general stopped being discs and started being the triangles? That was that my see? next question, too. <laughs> okay, okay, good. I jumped on it already. Because I, uh, I, I assumed it happened like mid-70s, but I guess not. They were still seeing the disc then, huh? Oh, triangles have been seen for a long time. Uh, my friend Dave Marler out of Illinois, um, he, in fact, he was compiling triangular sightings for years and years, and he turned it into a book um, that's easy to find now on triangle UFOs. And I th- believe that the sightings go back to the 1800s on triangles. Mm. Uh, I could be... I could be corrected on this, but I know it's not a recent phenomenon. It, it, it's been around for a long time. 
it okay. didn't seem to have its day in the sun, for lack of a better term, until you had the Phoenix light sighting, you know, the giant triangular craft over top of the city. And that was what kind of seems to have brought it to the mainstream. Um because you, well, you you have like triangular patterns of light, of UFOs flying in a triangular pattern of a, of a triangle, and then you flat out see people start to see the triangles at, at one point, and it went from being like you had the golden age of, of flying saucers where you had all kinds of different aliens and all kinds of different craft, and then it kind of like narrowed down to balls of light and saucers, and then at some point everything just became triangles. I'm not sure what the modern day like what the new interpretation of UFOs is to be honest with you, what people are reporting these days. Um, I think it's still triangles. You would probably know better than I would, though. Um, it, it, it's 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 a pretty mixed bag. Um, I want to uh, um, touch on something specifically that you said uh, before I continue. When we talk about triangles, usually, I, I mean, certainly the Phoenix Lights is a is a big deal, and not just because of the lights that we're seeing over the city, but the actual triangular shaped craft that we're seeing that evening um, in other parts of the state. But um, in northern Arizona, but the the thing about triangles is really Belgium in late 89 to early 1990, they were known for a really phenomenal wave of, mm. of triangle UFO sightings. There are even some photographs that are, are pretty compelling of what people had seen. Um, so, yeah, that was if if I look at that. And then there was, of course, here I am just simply touching on Belgium, but the uh, the Hudson Valley UFO ones um, in New York that Heineck um, – investigated uh, that even preceded that and i'm trying to think that was when did that happen um it was it certainly predated um the uh the belgium lights yeah and i'm trying to think of the year but it went on for years i know um people were seeing triangles in new york let's go to the lake michigan ufo wave of 1994 that whole side of the state that was that's the side of the state that's like between michigan and illinois and wisconsin and all that that big lake over there it seemed for a while like everybody that that was just like that was like the new area 51 for the longest time you would have lights coming out of the water it was kind of like down in florida where you had the the gulf stream not the gulf stream what the heck am i talking about a gulf breeze yeah gulf breeze it was like it was it was michigan's answer to florida's Gulf breeze. So uh, what was, how did that start? And I guess that would lead us into the whole Holland UFO, UFO incident. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, the Holland thing, it was, was a lot, a lot of people consider that event to be March 8th, 1994. And I will not argue that that's definitely the high point, if you will, of that particular uh, sighting wave, but people were seeing several uh, UFOs uh, before and after that particular night. And what people were seeing is basically disc-shaped lights in a variety of different colors, red, blue, green, white, doing all sorts of fancy maneuvers, um, flying in formation, and um, doing some pretty spectacular stuff in the sky that meant they, they clearly weren't airplanes and you know these sightings were muskegon grand haven down to grand rapids all in that whole sort of area there we're, we're seeing a lot more activity march 8th in particular had um some 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 notable 
um, things. Well, one of the things being that there were over 300 witnesses that particular night to UFOs. Um, there were several calls to 911. In fact, you can, um, if you go on YouTube and look for Ottawa County UFOs or Holland. Yeah, I did a Michigan whole show UFO out of all the audio calls, actually. Yeah. Um, we actually had the one where the air traffic controller was talking to the, to the law enforcement yeah. officer. Yep. So, yeah, so that, that audio is out there and the transcripts of a lot of these 911 calls, certainly, as well. So I'm not sure how deep you went into um, the part with the, the radar, but there's probably stuff I can add to that, even if you did touch Go on right it Go right ahead and put anything you want in there. Go right ahead. Okay. So um, the, the sightings were such a big deal that they – um, got a lot of newspaper coverage. I've got a big stack of newspaper articles on it. Um, one of the, the most noteworthy is the Detroit News Free Press. Um, they had a front page article on it, and yeah. it featured the Graves family, uh, this family of four, um, the parents and their two kids. Uh, Joy was 14 at the time, Michelle was 10. And they, this family of four looked out their window of their house and they saw a giant disc with they, they described it as a string of Christmas tree lights around it. So they looked at this thing for several minutes and realized, hey, this thing's not going anywhere. They all saw the same thing. Um, they decided to call the police and the police who were receiving tons of calls already um, said, oh, you've got one that's just sort of hovering there. We'll send somebody out to take a look at it. So they sent uh, this person, uh, Officer Jeff Feldhouse, to their home, and he gets out, and he's looking at the object with the binoculars he's got and realizes that, in fact, there's two objects, very similar, both giant disks with these brightly different colored lights around them. And as he's watching, one of them flies over the house that he stopped at the Graves family's house, and starts to <laughs> boogie out of there. So he uh, gets in his car and he's following it for uh, as far as he could. He eventually loses sight of it, but he definitely got an excellent look at it. Heck, it flew over the house in his car. So um, the police were like, oh, geez, you know, we have an officer, you know, who's on record, you know, seeing this thing right now. And so the police dispatch, uh, you know, the story calls the, um, the, up to the National Weather Service in Muskegon. And the radar operator, Jack Bushong, uh, if you've heard the audio, um, you've heard some of the discussion that he'd had. And so they, you know, he had a conversation with the police saying that the, the objects that he was seeing on the radar were, I think he said, half a thumbnail size. Whereas mm-hmm. um, if, he, if, if the National Weather Service does record airplanes on their radar they're generally just little pinpricks on the radar very tiny things and they don't stick around Um, the weather radar isn't built to detect aircraft it's built to monitor weather so the the fact that there were uh, three sometimes four of these very large you know half a thumbnail sized objects just hanging out there on the radar meant that these things were massive and that they were solid and um they didn't seem too anxious to to leave the the area 
And, you know, as they were watching, you know, um, as he was watching them on a radar, eventually they did push off over Lake Michigan. Interestingly, no sighting reports of them in Wisconsin or Illinois or Indiana. They just headed out over Lake Michigan and nobody saw them come out the other side. Now, the radar One, operator, I remember uh, th- at the time, nobody knew who this guy was. Nobody were able to find him. No one was able to talk to him or anything since then. So since you mentioned his name, I'm assuming you found who the guy was and people have done follow ups with him or no? Oh, yeah. Actually, um, I'm not familiar with him being uh, difficult to find. Um, the uh, Center for UFO Studies also uh, investigated this sighting uh, along with MUFON and other investigators outside of MUFON. So the Center for UFO Studies, um, J. Allen Hynek's grassroots uh, UFO investigative group, they um, sent one of their investigators to the uh, up to Muskegon to, to look into it. So Dr. Michael Swords, he goes up to the National Weather Service. He speaks with Bushong and asks for the radar data. And Bushong says they don't have it recorded. But, um, you know, so, but, you know, he explained to Dr. Swords what he had seen. So Dr. Swords says, okay. Um, if you can't show me any sort of actual radar data, can we do this? Can we do like a series of sketches where you draw um, sort of what it is that you you saw? And so Bushong says, well, well, let me check. And gets back to Dr. Swords and says, yes, we can do this series of sketches on one condition. The National Weather Service keeps its own copy. The Center for UFO Studies gets its copy, but nobody else sees it. So Dr. Swords agrees to this, and um, they do these series of sketches. And two weeks later, somebody does a Freedom of Information Act on the National Weather Service asking for information on the UFO sighting that night, and the sketches come out after two weeks. (laughs) so so i do have a copy of the sketches um you know in digital form but um but yeah so you know it's funny that just a couple weeks and a couple weeks after the sighting the the you know the the data was available and who would have thought that the national weather service was uh, beholden to freedom of information acts right are, are there general hotspots? Is, is West Michigan one of those areas where it pops up a lot, or is it um, pretty evenly distribu- distributed about the state? I was going to ask you questions. I had no good transition here. I'm sorry about mm-hmm. you, just sightings that get reported to you. I mean, in the time you're there, are there are there peaks? Are there peak years? Is it pretty even, um, or is it? Uh, and are there specific areas in the state where like there is a large spike compared to other areas? Okay. Well, I'll first of all uh, I'll, I'll start with. Uh, some universal truths about okay. uh, about sightings is that uh, UFOs are seen everywhere all the time. I'll start with that as a sort of a general rule of thumb. Where we get the most reports is where there's the highest population densities. Mm. So um, we have software, and in fact, um, it may still be up at the website that you can play around with it yourself at MUFON.com, where you can say, hey, give me the last 100 sightings in, in any given state. And it'll always pull up the major metropolitan areas right. as 
is the highest concentration of sightings. So it's wherever there are more people and probably access to technology to be able to report these things to a group like MUFON that you have the highest number of sightings. I remember they used to have it where you could ask for the last 1,000 sightings. And when you had that, you could trace I-75 and I-94 across the state. Oh, interesting. Um, just with UFO sightings. And the if I would have to say uh, a peak time of year, and before I get into peak years, a peak time of year doesn't really exist outside a small, tiny peak around the 4th of July. We get maybe a couple few more sightings right around the 4th of July, understandably. Um, but otherwise, and, and it's and it's really non-substantial. It's, it's, I would still hold by the fact that they're a pretty much constant throughout the year. Well, <clears throat> we get about 200 sightings a year. Okay. Um, and that can jump. Um, sometimes um, 2012 was definitely the year of Chinese lanterns or sky lanterns. We had 422 sightings that year. <laughs> And then wow. in 2015, uh, when drones were really a hot thing, um, and you know, I guess their popularity never really waned that much, but people, I think, started to understand what they were. But we got 331 sightings in 2015, and then uh, just um, not uh, the last day that I, I checked on this particular one, uh, um, Sunday. Let me figure out what the date on that was. Um, the 26th of uh, April, we got seven confirmed Starlink sightings that that particular <laughs> night alone. So, oh, so I'll, I'll I'll in Michigan. Ask, okay, I'll ask the question then. Then this, just in terms of how it, it operates. So you you get a reported sighting, and then what is it like? Maybe we should open the show with this; it would make more sense. But like, how, how do you investigate? <laughs> how do you investigate the actual sighting, and, and then get the idea that like it's a starling, or it's a drone, or it's a lantern, or it's it's something else? Like, can you walk me through the process in general? Okay, so most of our sightings come in through the website um, mufon.com. Michigan Mufon has its own website, m i m u f o n dot org. And that has a phone number, an 800 number that people can call uh, to report their sightings locally as well. And then it goes to our chief investigator, Daniel Snow, and he determines which of our investigators will look into a case. Now, it, it seems to be this this persistent constant that we have about six active investigators in our site at any given time. I've never really known that number to vary. It just seems to always have been the case forever. No matter how many people get trained, it seems as people on board, other people just drop out for whatever reason. So gotcha. um, back in the 90s, before we had a way to report these sightings online, we had far fewer sightings. Like we're talking, you know, maybe if we'd get a couple dozen sightings a year, that was something. And for the most part, those were telephoned in or people would write a letter, that that sort of a thing. And at that time, when you have a half a dozen investigators and, you know, 24 cases in a year, what you have is an opportunity to go on site, speak with the, the witness and get their full report and take a look around the area, that sort of a thing. But 
these days, when you have the same number of investigators, but 200 sightings a year in the, in the state alone, um, it's very rare for a case to get to a point where it seems, hey, we totally got to get some boots on the ground in that particular area. You know, the thing about UFO sightings is, like, say somebody reports to us, I saw a light do a 90-degree turn and zip away really fast this one night. I've been living, you know, somebody who's lived in a, a particular house for 20-some years, one night sees a light do a left turn, you know, in the sky. Right. And how valuable is it to send an investigator out at, to that location for right. that? Uh, it, it, there, you know, we definitely triage the the sightings and make decisions. And there are times where investigators go out. There are times where much less contact is required. And uh, we do our best, you know, with the team that we have. We are up to date on our on our investigations, which is a, a big plus. And you know, with an all volunteer army, but uh, generally, you know that that is what happens. So when something comes in, um, in the case uh, you mentioned, uh, Chinese lanterns, for them, it's pretty easy um, because those things move slowly through the sky right. and quite often people will have video or pictures. Um, and when you look at it, you're like, yep, that's what it is. If you've seen a, an, enough of them, mm -hmm. um, it's not to say that every orange orb somebody sees is necessarily a Chinese lantern, but after you've seen, uh, over a hundred, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you, you can pick, pick it up pretty it. quick. And so, uh, Drone sightings are, are, are much harder to determine, um, admittedly, and you well, have the tech to, is advanced enough now where they can they can do light patterns with them. They can fly in formation. Oh, you can yeah. do all kinds of things with them. And yeah. if you're at a good enough distance away and you see that, you know, it's I, I can understand why somebody could see that. A few years ago, yeah, not so much. Now they've got these ones that are huge with massive floodlights that you can yep. just have a couple of people out in the woods screwing around or something, flying over somebody's car and then hitting the super huge bright lights out in a car and then shut them off and take off. And people would right. be like, what the hell was that? So now the tech is catching up to where you could easily fake these things. So you almost need like some kind of an element of fantasticalness where something disappears out of nowhere and then reappears someplace else or splits and does all kinds of crazy stuff like the Aurora Project used to be rumored to do. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, the technology of the videos that we're seeing now to same thing. Um it used to be people would send us videos where they would Photoshop something on top of an existing picture, mm -hmm. and and it was easy to tell. You go into the picture's EXIF data and see that it's a couple different images or that the picture's been doctored or you go in and it's pixelated. But now you could create an environment that's completely digital with a digital object in it, and so you don't. You don't you can't say, oh, this thing was put on top of that because it's yeah. all just one giant digital image. 
I remember several years ago there was a video floating around of a guy shooting a UFO outside of his car, and everybody quickly determined, yes, that's that's probably a fake UFO. There's nothing to it, but it turned out that everything in the video was completely created. The inside of the car, the, the window, right, everything, yeah. the whole. Exactly. It was like, yes, the UFO is fake, but so is everything else, and that was what everybody was concentrating on the UFO, and it just went to show, you know, this is where the state of video technology is, and that was maybe I don't know seven, eight years ago, maybe maybe nine years yeah. ago. So now it's come a long way since then but um i do want to ask you about a couple of more cases though because we're running up on the hour mark here pretty shortly this one i forgot to mention before the show and if you don't know anything about it it's cool this is one that's fascinated me my whole life because i live um in the down river lower detroit area i've lived here almost my entire life and there was a story of an old newspaper it was a wyandotte news herald and it's the mystery of the flying saucer seen over wyandotte i don't quite know what the date is but there's a story they're talking about how police were chasing UFOs all over Wyandotte. There's a major, for anybody outside of Michigan, there's a major street that runs by there called Fort Street. And apparently, this UFO came down, scraped it, went up, flew over it, and flew over the city. Do you know anything about the history of that case or anything at all? I can't tell you more than what I've heard, which is pretty much what you've already said. Okay. That's what um, everybody always comes of, up and says. <laughs> well, I got one too, so hold on. Are you done? None of our veteran members really go into it, although I, I will say that I have heard as much as you've said repeated a few times and not seen anything more about it or heard anybody say that they were a witness to it, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah, I got a quick one if we're going to throw out ones that I always heard about or want to know about. the I live pretty a good way south next to the lake of uh, Selfridge Air Force Base, the Air National Guard Base, and I think it was like 2000 2000- – uh, maybe 2011, 2012, the, not me, but a neighbor was real into like um, radio frequencies and bandwidth stuff. And there were rumors of all kinds of chatter of Air Force bases um, picking up uh, UFOs. I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, Air Force chatter about UFOs. Like, was, was that ever called into you guys or is that just like people playing around on ham radio? I don't know. Sorry. Oh, all right. Good enough. So let's move on to the case that you personally investigated, the 2004 UFO landing in a Highland Township. I have never heard about this case, but seeing as how you're the one that covered it, you'd be the best person to ask. Tell us all about this. There were my years as an investigator. Now as um, state director, it's rare that I, I get directly involved in a case. But during my time where I was doing investigations regularly this was the one that that gripped me the most and it actually i i was i was state director at the time and segueing and wrapping up a lot of my investigative duties at the time but uh, this one when i heard it i'm like yeah I'm, i'm on this one for sure this guy calls in march of 2005 he says that uh, he had multiple UFO sightings over a two-day period back in September of 2004, and this man was very shaken up on the phone. He was very distraught, very upset, really needed to get what he saw off of his chest, that sort of thing. I agreed to actually meet with him. Um, one of the things that I was involved with at the time, there were a couple new field investigators, and I thought this would be a great case for us all to go to visit the witness. We go to his house and um, interview him, and his story starts off that on the 29th, he lived in Highland Township, Michigan, and where he lived, it was uh, the roads were fairly narrow, and the trees were pretty tall, and the roads were also windy, and he was coming home one night about 10 p.m., 
And as his pickup turned around a, a particular bend right above him, he found himself directly under a giant uh, triangular craft. Said it had a right red light in the center of its underbelly and then white bright lights at the vertices, and it was completely silent. It wasn't moving, and when I asked him just how big his estimate of it was, he said he thought it was about the size of a sports stadium. What? Wait. What? Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> That's Yikes. big. That's how, how does, Go ahead. I have to say, it is not uncommon for people to report absolutely gigantic things. Uh, you'd be surprised at how many sightings we get in where people report massive, massive mothership, I guess you would say, sized uh, craft. So it, um, he was obviously very shaken when he saw it. He didn't slow down. He floored it. And he got out of there as quick as possible. So he, when he made it home, you know, he was just all upset and bothered about what he had seen and stayed up fairly late. And before we get back to him and what happened to him the next day, interestingly, that night there were several UFOs reported around Detroit Metro Airport. People were seeing bright flashing lights zipping all over the sky near the airport doing crazy maneuvers. And these were the witnesses since it was close to the airport. um, It was four in the morning that most of these sightings happened. These were people that lived near the airport or worked near the airport. They've seen, you know, however many planes come in and out of Detroit Metro Airport. They know what air traffic looks like. Yeah, my house is in the flight path. (laughs) This was not what they were seeing was normal aircraft. One of the witnesses called into Dick Purton's morning show and said, uh, hey, you know, I saw this crazy UFO, described it, asked if anybody else had seen it. So Dick Burton says, hey, anybody else see this UFO? Call into the show. And uh, a couple more people called into the show and said, yes, that they saw strange lights that night, too. So Burton, off the the air, I guess, between commercial breaks or whatever, um, calls Detroit Metro Airport and says, you know, hey, a lot of people are – we're reporting strange lights last night, kind of where 275 and I-94 intersect. And he wondered if they, you know, they were aware of that. And the person he spoke to said that they weren't aware of it at all. Hmm. And Pert says, you know, you, you know, is it possible to check radar or whatever? And uh, the person he spoke with says, oh, yeah, our radar doesn't go that far. That's right there, so, though. How can it not go that far? Like, I, I, I'm from the area, so I don't mean to freak out like this, but... Metro Airport ends right just about where those two ray freeways intersect. I don't even think it's maybe a half mile from the airport to where these lights were being reported. At. <laughs> right, exactly. And those exactly. things go from. I mean, they they can radar out to Illinois with that. That doesn't. That does Illinois. I'm sorry. I'm I'm going to catch flag yeah, for that. Illinois. <laughs> I'm going to catch flag. But um, that, that that doesn't make any sense at all. That means that they can't track right. airports and uh, airplanes unless they're literally right on top of the airport. Yeah, if you weren't afraid to fly before, this is certainly <laughs> that makes um, but, no. That doesn't make any sense at all because the the radar towers are right there. They're they're just you know I ride by them on my motorcycle all the time. They're right there. <laughs> yeah, in fact, if you were to ask somebody, you know, hey, where's Detroit Metro Airport? You could probably say it's right where two seventy five and ninety four meet up. Right. Yeah, it's that's that, yeah. that's pretty much right where it is. Yeah, that's it. It's right there. Yeah. So, how much interference do you run into like that? Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm maybe I'm putting a, a 
a sinister uh, twist to it, but like how much perceived interference do you think you run into? I don't think anybody oh, wants- I'm gonna burst my bubble here. <laughs> I, I, Go ahead. You, you, I'll put it this way. You have to get to a witness while they're still emotionally involved in what they've seen. Mm. If if you get them after, um, quote unquote, common sense grips them <laughs> or they are not emotionally invested in their sighting anymore, mm-hmm. Then they'll become more and more guarded, sometimes mm. forgetful, sometimes people there. intentionally quarantine yep. things that they've seen. So <clears throat> you have to get them in that while well, they're still in that mood of holy crap, you know, <laughs> yeah, uh, you'll never believe what I saw. And they want to get it off their chest. That is that is the ideal um, witness within any position of authority before they can think clearly and think that their job might be in danger. Like, for example, in this case with WOMC, what if WOMC got, you know, somebody from the Detroit Metro Airport on the line right. and started talking UFOs? That right, would be right, right. You know. So, yeah, so it, it depends. You have to catch the person before they, they, they realize they, they shouldn't talk. Witnesses, you know, who have nothing to lose, um, you know, sometimes they'll report stuff after the fact. But if somebody's job is on the line or credibility in any in any respect, it's the, the more time passes, um, it's harder to get a story out of them until until which point they're retired and then they want to talk about it. Yeah, but at that gotcha. point, you've there's so much time has passed that you might not be getting you might be getting an embellished story where something that happens really quickly it's still fresh in their head because they're still processing everything that they've seen so when it starts to get that far out it's kind of like i mean you're getting information but how reliable and how accurate to the point is the information like the stuff that i've seen a few years ago if i have to go back as hard as i tried to burn into my head and memorize it i know that there's still gaps and stuff now that i don't remember quite as well as i did as when i saw it so yeah, it's important to get that out there quick. Okay. And and I don't know <clears throat> if your show has a hard stop or not or Oh no, um, you're good. You're good. Okay. I mean, we can go over a little bit, yeah. Cuz I I'd like to just follow up with what happened that witness who called in, um what happened to him the next day. Yeah, please. So, <clears throat> we go to his house. Um like I said, so I was able to see firsthand what he described. He was upstairs in his bedroom at about 3 p.m. the next day. Uh, he stayed up so late that he took an afternoon nap the next day, got up, and as he looked out his window, his second floor window, he sees what appears to be a car driving over the tops of the trees at the edge of his property. And so he takes a closer look, and he's like, wow, it's the size of a car. It's moving the speed of a car. It has no wheels. It looks very car-like, and but it's got these three portholes on the side. And he watches this thing go at about 45 miles an hour, he says, over the tops of the trees and disappears to a point uh, where he can't see out the window anymore. And he was about to run downstairs to, to see if he could see it better. And then he's just like, oh, no. And he started into a panic attack, he said. Uh, with the hmm. previous night coming back to him, and then this, then then seeing this, <clears throat> so it took him actually several minutes. He said uh, to work up the courage to go down the stairs. He goes down to the stairs. He goes downstairs into his kitchen area, looks out the window, and it's parked in his backyard. 
or or one just like it because he lost sight of it. And so, yeah, uh, just it, it wasn't a particularly far from. I would say, you know, maybe uh, less than ten yards from the window. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing was parked out in the backyard, and he said it was parked there for about an hour. Oh, so you man. So, so all the, I mean, you don't have to be a fancy UFO investigator to think of the the first line of obvious questioning. Did you take a picture of it? And he right. said no. He goes, I didn't want it to think I had a weapon. Um, he said after it was there for several minutes, he thought that it might have been stalled out. And <laughs> do you need a job? So, <laughs> yeah. <Sure. laughs> so yeah, exactly. So he he so he didn't want to scare it with a with a, a, a camera. And uh, then um, I said, well, did you call anybody? You know, next obvious question. And he said, he goes, no, because what if it knew that I was calling somebody and it thought that I was calling for some sort of backup and that, you know, I that there would be this big fight on his property mm. um, between whoever's in the UFO and, you know, law enforcement or whoever shows up and he just didn't want to invite that kind of trouble. He said, so, I, you know, I said, well, what did you do? He goes, I sat on the couch and I watched it for an hour and he drew a, a, an illustration on a sketch. It was wedge shaped, the best I could describe it. And yeah, it had three portholes. And uh, he said inside the portholes, he could see this red gas sort of moving around like red smoke. And that every once in a while, he caught sight of a, a slight body inside, kind of like a child like mm-hmm. size body walking around inside and he would this guy was in tears he was shaking he was absolutely terrified six months after right he's telling the story and he's still completely shaken up by it and now we had our um uh, I, I like to say antique uh, radiation detection equipment on us. Mm. So, so we went out to the backyard. Now in March at that time, there was snow on the ground and a lot of it. And he gave a vague idea, you know, where it landed, but it was under snow. So we couldn't see if there were any sort of depressions in the ground. He said he didn't notice anything. And yeah, we did our test, but you know, with our equipment, but you know, at that point, you know, six months after the fact, you know, we weren't going to pick anything up. And so he um, never wanted to talk about it again. In fact, when we offered to come back to his home when the snow melted and take another look and said we'd appreciate a chance to do that, he said really he just wanted to dump it on us so he could forget it. Hmm. Like, I'm not thinking about this anymore. I'm telling you guys just to, you know, just – to you know, clear my head, get it off my chest, and uh, and so yeah, that was our only contact with him. Now, one of the things that's um, interesting about being a UFO investigator is if you get enough sightings in, you get sightings that are similar. And a few years later, um, this uh, uh, witness, who was a Michigander, said uh, that uh, in 2008 he was in the middle of the night, about 3 a.m., he was driving his truck. He was a truck driver um, in Oklahoma, and he saw an object that pretty much matched what this guy said was in his backyard 100%. 
it was like <laughs> the, the 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 details uh, the you know it was striking how similar it was and you know he had no idea what this other guy had seen it was a fairly unique shaped craft and yet somebody else reported the same exact thing just a few years later so so did he what? have any instance of missing time or any of the other things that go along with it or anything like that no no he claimed that he didn't lose any time we did ask and he said he didn't lose any time wow yeah, he was aware. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Well, um, I'm pretty much out of stuff, and we're over the hour mark. Patrick, did you have anything else you want to throw at him before we uh, wrap this up here? No, I'm pretty good. Um, I'm just looking through my notes here, make sure I didn't miss anything. No, I think I'm good. Bill, we're going to let you go. Where can people find you? Where can they reach you? How do people reach your site? And if you have any books or anything that you want to put out there for people to go and purchase, now is your chance to go ahead and talk about them. MUFON.com is MUFON's international organization. So if, uh, if you've seen a UFO and want to report it, or if you yourself want to investigate UFO sightings, go to that website. It's mufon.com, um, mufon.com. And um, Michigan MUFON's website, again, is mimufon.org. And if you want to join in our local chapter and attend some of our meetings, uh, lately we've been meeting by Zoom. Um, before that, we met in person, and we plan to meet in person again once this is all over. But right now, that's how we meet. Um, in September, we will have a, a presence at the Michigan UFO Contact Conference, September 11th and 12th in Houghton Lake. And if you look up Michigan UFO Contact, um, you should be able to find information on the, the conference. And um, I am an easy target uh, if you just look up google my name you'll see um some of the projects i've been involved with i'm on facebook uh, please friend me there and i have contributed to a handful of books my own book is about my personal experiences it's called experiencer raised in two worlds you can find it on amazon and i released that in 2009 and the sequel um, only took me 11 years, but it's uh, <laughs> my sequel to it, Experience uh, Two Worlds Collide, uh, should be out by August is my target of this I'll year. probably have you back on for both of those to talk about, because that's a whole other aspect of your life is the things you've seen and you've had happen to you completely outside of your involvement with MUFON. So... Um, thanks for being here. We've really appreciated talking to you. This is a fun little history lesson uh, to talk about. You know, there's, these are all you, – you are our first – my first MUFON person that I've ever interviewed in any way, shape, or form before. So, you know, it's it's fitting that you're local and it's cool to be able to talk to something – to people about something, the stuff that happened around here. So uh, we appreciate you being here. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It's been nice talking to you. Oh, thank you so very much as well. I, I And yes, please do keep me in mind for a future show. I'd love it. Thank oh, you. absolutely. But if you don't hear from me, bug me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm completely fine with it. So Patrick even here, he might even want to have you on his show at some point. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll definitely probably bend your arm down the road. Hi there, I'm Logan. And I'm Lindsay. And we host the new podcast, Folklore on the Rocks, where we talk about folklore and lesser-known creatures, cryptids, and monsters from around the world. When we say lesser-known, we mainly mean that we won't be covering creatures like Bigfoot or Nessie or Chupacabra, just because they're discussed so often, and the world just has so many other awesome options to draw from. Every two weeks, we'll be diving deep into the legends and culture that surround a specific creature. 
and getting a bit tipsy as we do so. But don't worry, we do our research sober. <laughs> On the weeks in between, we'll be narrating and discussing folktales. So some will be historical folklore from the regions that our creatures are from, and some will be more like modern folklore, like no sleeps and creepypastas. You can find out more about us on our website, FolkloreOnTheRocks.com, on Facebook and Instagram at FolkloreOnTheRocks, and Twitter at at FolkloreRocks! So come on, grab a drink, join us, and let's dig deep together. Hello everyone, let me tell you about the Apple for the Teacher podcast. I'm Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So you're probably thinking it's about reading, writing and arithmetic, right? Well, think again. It's a fresh take on true crime, where you wouldn't expect to find true crime. In schools, yes, schools. You will hear tragic stories about murder, abduction, school bus hijack, student disappearance, suicide, kidnap and ransom, a school camp tragedy, the list goes on. So if you're looking for something a little different in the true crime genre, then Apple for the Teacher is for you. So join me as I present the bad apples. But until then, remember to be a good apple. So that was Bill from the Michigan UFO Network. Really cool guy. Um, very yeah, knowledgeable. I thought it was funny that after we were done recording, he actually apologized for not knowing his facts about stuff that happened in other states. <laughs> yeah, <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> we're like, dude, it's it's okay. It's not a big deal. I didn't know exactly about the Hudson Valley, but yeah, it was the, you know that's that's UFO lore, but it's not Michigan. So I wasn't really because we had him on here to talk about Michigan stuff. I was surprised he didn't know about the Wyandotte case. I'm kind of bummed because that's one I've heard about my whole life, and it's really local for me, uh, somewhat local for you, but um. Do you wonder if that's just like um, like an urban legend you heard among people and never really got reported anywhere? Like, I don't think you, so like, because I actually have a newspaper which I can. I'll send you a picture of it. It's a picture of a used uh, of the Wyandotte News Herald. Okay, and it, the headline is um, actually I'll pull it up here. I see if I can find it because I had it pulled up when I was talking to him. And again, it's one of those things that here it is. Here's what it says right here. Uh, this is from the Wyandotte News Herald. I can't quite read the date on it. I'm not sure. If it's 1907 or something like mm-hmm. that, uh, it looks like it's sometime in August. But the headline on the main page is Mystery Flying Saucer Seen Over Wyandotte. And then the little subcaption down below to the right, Flying so- flying Discs Drive Police Nuts. And I can't read mm. the text because it's too small. And I've heard throughout my life, because I've lived in this area, stories about how um, that this UFO went up and kind of like docked with power lines and then it flew over across and it smacked down across the major road, which is Fort Street that runs through the area. It's a major intersection road that runs through the lower half down here. And it scraped across the ground of that and then it arced up and it went over and it flew over the city of Wyandotte itself. And then I've heard Mm. also reports that this thing was seen all over the place at that time. It was everywhere. It would pop up here, it would pop up there. And after, then apparently it just flew out over the water, flew out over the Detroit River or Lake Erie and crossed over into Canada. And that was the last anybody have seen of it. And, Mm. um, that's really the whole point of the story. And I've talked to a few old timers and they were like, yeah, for years there was this big scrape on the road that was there forever. And they don't have finally repaved the road or did whatever they did to it. But for years you could see this scrape on the road where this thing flew across the road and scraped it and flew up out, out over the water. And I've never heard much more about that story. So. It's kind of like, 
okay, you know, it's just one of those weird little UFO stories that doesn't go anywhere. But it was printed in a local newspaper. So that, not that that necessarily means it's true, but enough people saw it and reported it that they actually went out and did a thing about it. And it was front page news on the paper at the time. So I don't know. It's just one of those things I was, you know, hoping to hear more about. But every time I talk to anybody about it, I only get little. It's like he said, you only get little bits and snippets of information. So right. Well, who knows? I I knew the one I heard about. Uh, um, Suffrage Air Force Base was like just chatter in the wind of people who heard rumors of people suppressing uh, uh, distress calls from Air Force commanders. But See, you never know. I don't see. I have a hard time though, because you would think that that wouldn't go out over civilian channels. That would be private channel stuff that people don't well, have the channels to get onto, like police if, scanners. If, you know. Well, if he said anything on the backup uh, to it, like yeah, you heard stuff. Because then I heard that there's a guy I knew in college who uh, played around with like ham radio and pirate radio stuff, mm-hmm. and and they would run pranks all the time, where I they mean, would uh, where they would make it sound like they were. Um, Distress signals from uh, the lakes, like boats and stuff like that. I mean, probably yeah. really illegal stuff, to be honest with you. Like, yeah. you shouldn't do. Yeah. But, like, so I definitely could see them playing around like that. Yeah, I don't see a pro- – I don't see any – I'm sure people would do that. People sit around and get drunk and party or whatever or just yeah. the pranksters. Like, he brought up the fake company that supposedly saw – Right. You know, and I remember the guys in my hobby store where I worked at. They were in front of me talking about it. I never heard anything more about it and then I, this comes back up years later. So, this kind of stuff happens all the time with this stuff. People are always like trying to prove, oh, ha-ha, we fooled you. It's actually a fake UFO, etc. So well, you got some good. You got some good A roll here because I just realized I wasn't recording the, uh, <laughs> the the second half of this. Hopefully, you got the second half recorded. Oh yeah, I got it. We're okay, good. good. We're good. Right. So yeah, he was neat. Um, it, it was. I met him at a comic book convention recently. I was walking through, and a buddy of mine goes, "Hey, I know that guy. Go talk to you know. We're gonna go up and talk to him later." And then I just walked up and started talking to him, and I'm like, "I want to interview you, but I'm not sure what we could talk about." And he's like, "Well, I got my book and stuff." And then somebody sent me a bunch of slides from his presentation, and I said, "There's a lot of good stuff here, buddy. So, your 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 money show is to ask him not just about his contactee experiences, but ask him about his philosophy of UFOs because like that nugget he wouldn't go into. No, I didn't really want him to. I know, at this I point. know, I know. Um, but that was a good teach. He did a good job of pulling it back. because I would have been like, please uh, tell me more. Well, I'm going to have him back again, and more than likely you'll be here for it. Because oh, again, you're familiar now that you're familiar with this, you're familiar, familiar with Michigan and everything. So, you know, more than likely I'll, I'll have him back to talk about it because we briefly talked about that at the comic book convention. I said, is there anything that you want to talk about that no one's ever talked to you about? And he said, yeah, I've had an experience. I've been inside of one of these crafts. I've had a lifetime oh, of experiences dude. with these things. I mean, and I said, be, really? That's me, Mr. Party Pooper. I'm glad you didn't ask me because all for me, it's all disinformation, <laughs> or it's uh, or or we are visited by stuff, and mm-hmm. it's like roadside picnic. We just we're just too small and don't understand what we're seeing. Yeah, see, I'm not. That, that's kind of why. I, whenever we do shows about this kind of stuff, I try to. I, I actually should have asked him that at the beginning of the show. I like to get a perspective right off the bat as of where do you stand on this? What where are you approaching this from? So it gives people like people know exactly what their perspective is on this, whether it affects their interview or their opinion. It's like when you have a like my friend Tyler Koch John. I, he he taught me whenever you're interviewing a doctor or a person of science or whatever, find out where they're coming from, find out you know where they're getting their paycheck from or what their interest 
interest in this stuff is. So you've got a baseline to go from. And I kind of wanted to do that with him just because that's the big thing in the UFO. It's, it's much like Bigfoot. Is this a spiritual creature or is this a physical creature? UFOs, it's along the lines of, is this a nuts and bolts thing or is this a consciousness phenomena where we're not actually seeing craft? Something is affecting our consciousness to make us think that. Me personally, my views, I don't know what this stuff is and it probably falls somewhere in the middle of all this. And a lot of people in UFOs have a hard time with that because they, they get very clasped into their, um, into their schools of thought. And then something like me comes along and says, well, they could be both. This could be something that is a physical phenomena, but at the same time, it could also be this mimicking that phenomena. We don't know what this is. It could be somewhere in between. And then both parties tend to look at me, stare at me and spit starts tripping out of their mouth with a blank stare. Like, no, no, that does, that that's not how this works. And I'm like, we don't know how this works for anybody to say, this is how this works or that doesn't work. Nobody knows anything. So when you approach these topics, it's important to say, where are you coming from in your belief system to this to make sure uh, to see how it affects the interview or whatever? It's kind of like that concept of if a person's involved in an experiment, they can't be conscious of the experiment because it'll affect the results of the experiment. Does that make sense? Observer effect. That's exactly it. So yeah. it's kind of it's important for me to get that information out there to say, well, if I'm going to talk to you about this, what are your thoughts on this before we go any further on it? And then people can base, make, get their minds made up about, based on what they hear on that. Can I jump off on one last thing that has nothing to do with what we just talked about? But you, you, as you said this, maybe connect with something else we said during the podcast. Sure. John Tenney is like the nexus of all Michigan weird stuff that everyone knows. In yeah, some he way. is. He is. I like. I love that guy. And the second I heard his name, the second I heard his name brought up, I was like, Oh yeah, he's I a know good that guy. guy. I have a real hard time getting him on the show. There's been a couple of times like, Yeah, I'm gonna come I on the show. I reached out. I reached out. Yeah, he's, reached he's out. hard to get. He's really hard to get. Yeah. I had him on here for a Patreon episode talking about David Bowie's experiences with UFOs after David Bowie oh, passed he's, away. John uh, Tenney. Yeah, he's he's a real knowledgeable, fun guy. Um, I've hung out with him quite a few times. Very friendly. Um, the joke that runs with the Project Archivist community on Facebook has to do with a banana. He was on stage giving a presentation at Historic Fort Wayne in Detroit about the paranormal. And I'd known him a little bit through different events. And we were both at the snack bar and I was buying a banana and I looked at him and I paid for it. And I looked at him and I was like, just so you know, when you're up on stage, I'm going to be looking at you as I eat this banana. So stare me in the eyes. And neither one, I mean, we knew he was joking, but neither one of us laughed and the girl behind the counter laughed. And we just both looked at her with a straight face and she was like, ha, ha. Uh, um, and then we walked away and we were trying to keep from cracking up because it was really funny how uncomfortable we made this woman. That's great. So he's up on stage doing his presentation. Every time he'd look over at me, I'm like shoving this banana into my mouth, seductively staring him on stage. <laughs> I just don't, don't really remember if he saw it or not or, or if he reacted at the time. But there was people around us looking at me and my uh, and my sister was sitting next to me and she's cracking up and – you know, we're just, I'm just doing these really lewd gestures of the banana as he's on stage giving his presentation as I'm staring at him. And for years, that joke has carried over to our community and no one really knows what the whole banana joke is. That's what it is if people didn't know before. And it involves Tenny. So anyways. Um, all right. Well, we're going to wrap this up because you got to get going here. Again, your show is almost educational. Anywhere that you find our podcast, you can find your podcast. You just recently lost a fantastic interview with Dr. Andrea Kita about oh. the whole virus thing that's going on because she was on our show to talk about it. And and then boom, oh, lo and behold, a big virus comes along and you lost the interview. So I feel I so did. bad for you. <laughs> I'm going to bother. Uh, well, I'm gonna attempt to bother her again. It was an hour and a half of like pure wow, gold and like, the computer died. I brought the computer back and like the ghost of the interview was there and like the first 10 seconds and then nothing. I was like, oh. wow, she's probably getting hammered right now, too. So it's with all with interview requests and everything. So who knows? I know. 
All right. I'm going to let you go, Patrick. Um, thanks for being on here. And uh, we will do this again sometime. It's always a pleasure to have you on here. So I guess I'll close the show with, with my usual way and say this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. You can say whatever the hell you want. And we'll wrap it up. Uh, stay safe. Keep your toes. Stay inside. Stay, okay. That's <laughs> – Keep your toes, man. Keep your toes. <laughs> Keep your toes. Peace, folks. <laughs> oh, shit. Keep your toes. Yeah, that's that's a great way to close out the show. The world plague's going on, and you're telling people to keep their toes. I guess, Keep I guess your toes, man. I guess it's important. <laughs> that's all I thought about. I've been stuffed in your pocket for the last hundred days. When I don't get my bath, I take it out on the slaves. So grease up your baby for the ball on the hill. I'll polish them rockets now and swallow those pills and say, oh. Space Lord Mother Mother. I squeezed out in harm and I'm drowning